Indeed. Thank you, Gordon. Welcome, everyone, to Bay Presbyterian Church on this Christmas Eve. It's great to see all of you. We've, uh, we've done this once before, so we had our practice run. You're the real group, so we just wanted to let you know that. It is wonderful to see you. Just remember that we will have worship service tomorrow at 10 o'clock. There won't be Sunday school, but we will have worship at 10 o'clock tomorrow, and it'll be one of those things where it's sort of the rest of the story as we were, will continue along in Luke, but... Uh, just want to invite you if uh, you don't have a church home, but just glad you're here. I hope you didn't have to shovel too much snow to get out of your driveway. Or maybe I should say too many iguanas to get out of your driveway. Uh, just a couple of things to mention as I'm trying to think of the things I'm supposed to mention. Uh, if you placed a poinsettia, I know that in the instructions somewhere it said you could pick them up after the Christmas Eve service. If possible, we would like to keep them here uh, for the service tomorrow. So uh, if you have to have it, though, that's fine. We're not going to be taking down names if we see you up here taking a poinsettia. But if we could have them in place for tomorrow, that would be wonderful. And otherwise, um, it's just wonderful to be able to be here and, uh, and worship on this Christmas Eve as we thank the Lord for the gift of his son. And so as we are here for that purpose, we have the lighting of our Advent wreath, and I think you'll recognize the folks who are doing that, so I'll ask them to come and do that now. Tonight the Advent season ends. We wait no longer. That great event for which we waited has happened. God's promise of a Redeemer is fulfilled. Christ Jesus is born. We light the Christ candle with praise to our God who brings joy to the world. Scripture comes from Paul's epistle to, the, to Titus, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Let's take a few moments now to prepare our hearts to worship.
for those of you who may remember back to your seventh grade Spanish class, you may recall that the word carne means meat. I think some of you have probably had chili con carne, and you've probably known some carnivores in your day. Uh, the word carne means meat or flesh. So when we talk about the incarnation, we're talking about the enfleshment, the enfleshment when God would take on flesh and become a man. I, a few years back, I, um, I was preaching here on John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, this very passage. Afterwards, there was a couple in our church, and they said, we want to take you out to lunch. And they took me out to lunch, and then they, t- <laughs> then they took me downtown. Uh, and by downtown, what I mean is they read me the riot act because they didn't hear on Christmas Eve a sermon on the nativity. And John chapter 1, 1 through 14, is the nativity. It's the enfleshment when God would become a human being, not a king, not in a palace, not enrobed in purple, the finest of uh, fabric. No, this, this king was born in a manger. It is the enfleshment of God in all humility, in humbleness. And so for our call to worship today, we are going to be referring to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. We'll read responsively. It's in your bulletin. It'll be on the screens. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He came for testimony to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world. He came to his own home, and his own people received him not. Who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. We have a first hymn, don't we? Sorry, Gory. Um, we're going we're gonna to pray. We're going to ask God to join us here this evening, and then we're going to sing together. Would you pray with me? Our great God and Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this evening, for this reminder that even the secular world gives us that we indeed worship a king who is listening, who was born in a manger, who lived that perfect life that we couldn't live, died the death we couldn't die, and rose again. God, how we worship and adore this incarnate King.
King Jesus. And God, today we're here to worship and to sing his praises. We pray that you would help us as we seek to worship him in spirit and in truth. Hear us, O God. We make a prayer in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Stand with me as we begin. Oh, come, all ye faithful. I will be reading to you from Matthew, first chapter, verses 18 through 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, 
before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. We're going to sing a little town of Bethlehem. Please take that word sheet and let's remain seated as we sing. This is Matthew 2, 1 through 6. 
Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Angels we have heard on high. Let's stand together, please.
Reading from Luke 2, 1 through 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you? Your baby boy will one day rule. 
Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them, gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go into Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Would you stand to your feet, please? This reading is from Luke 2, 16 through 20. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. 
But Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things he had heard and seen, which was just as they had been told.
Such beautiful music as we all enjoy and utilize in worship in this season of the year. It is a reminder to us that extraordinary compositions have been produced surrounding this event that we celebrate, the incarnation, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is extraordinary. And we're here presumably because we understand it. The rest of the world enjoys the lights and the parties, the decorations, all the various things that we employ in this season of the year or that the various chambers of commerce employ in order to get people attracted to the stores and the parades. But we know that this Lord Jesus Christ has become one of us to redeem us. When we read in the account that is so faithfully given to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but the human author being Luke, the beloved physician, again we rejoice to know that the doctor has good news. As he begins this portion of Scripture, chapter 2, verse 1, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Now we can imagine those reading these writings when they were first produced in that first century, even though it was decades after this man had been in the position of rule, they still would have read knowingly and perhaps there were even knowing nods in the room when the words were first read. Oh, Caesar Augustus, I remember those days. That man was powerful. He was the most powerful ruler in the earth, arguably, then. But suddenly here, he's part of the backstory. We might deem him to be the main character. Those people who lived at that time perhaps would have said, you know, Wait till the history is written. Well, the history was written, but not as anyone would have predicted. When the most significant of people suddenly becomes just a secondary person in the account, and the one who would have been deemed the most unimportant suddenly is the most significant of all. Caesar Augustus is a part of this story simply because he issued a decree get everybody back to their hometowns to be taxed or registered to be taxed. That's what governments do, you know. <clears throat> I think it was Ben Franklin who reported that the only thing certain in life are death and taxes. So we could just argue that Caesar's stepping up to do his part, the thing that governments do. But all of this only served God's plan. Caesar's decree, after all, was a part of God's eternal decree because the arrival of the Lord Jesus was decreed to happen in a specific time and place according to God's specific plan, <laughs> not Caesar's. And I want that to be a comfort to you in a world that is so dominated by media and reports about what's happening in Washington or various governments around the world. We need to remember that the one who rules and reigns is on high and all others are simply secondary in his great plan for the world. And all of this was so that Mary and Joseph would end up in that precise location at the precise time for the birth of her son. How, after all, would you get this unknown person living in an unknown place, Nazareth, 120 miles to the south to a place called Bethlehem, another insignificant place? Remember, we know Nazareth was not thought of very well when 
said one of the disciples, said, could anything good come from Nazareth? <clears throat> Bethlehem was insignificant also in terms of its size. But that's where Mary needed to be. Indeed, it was uh, Charles Wesley in the hymn that we'll sing at the conclusion of this sermon. I want to give you hope that there's a conclusion to the sermon. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Late in time? Does that mean he, he didn't get here on time? No, that's not what the phrase means. It means he got here precisely at the right time because it conveys to us the meaning of Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, there's the late in time, got there at just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That wonderful legal standing where all of us are given sonship, male and female. It's not sexist terminology here. Don't let anyone convince you of that. This tells us there's no second-class citizens in God's kingdom. When we trust in the Lord Jesus as we are ushered into the kingdom of light, we all have standing before God as sons would in that day and time. Give thanks for that. So Jesus came at just the right time to accomplish all of those things. And these people in positions of authority, be it Caesar Augustus or Quirinius, by the way, skeptics have pointed out from time to time that Quirinius issued an order for a census in the year 6 AD. They said that would have been too late to have been a part of this narrative. Luke was wrong, they say. Well, it turns out that the language here may very well just as with equal validity instead of reading this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria may well be that this registration happened before Quirinius was governor of Syria and then of course it doesn't preclude the possibility that he may well have served more than one term as governor so don't let anybody derail you with these things the point is they were in those positions thinking they were there for one purpose but God had his own purpose in mind and that's what matters so they were in Bethlehem when the event took place. Bethlehem is David's city. That's the place where Samuel, the prophet, was sent to find the king to replace Saul when God had determined to take the kingdom from Saul back in the Old Testament and give it to another. And he told Samuel to go to Bethlehem to find Jesse and look for the replacement in his household. So he goes, and you remember the story. Jesse brings out all of his sons, presumably, and Samuel goes down the line one after the other. Nope, he's not here. And he looks at Jesse as if to say, you're holding out on me, bud. What's going on here? And Jesse said, well, I do have another son, but he's the youngest, and he's unimportant, and he's out in the field with a sheep. Go get him. And we learn in that passage of Scripture that God doesn't judge based on outward appearance, but he looks upon the heart. And thus David, this boy of ruddy complexion who had been out there with the sheep, tending them, seemingly unimportant in the great scheme of things, all of a sudden is anointed king over Israel. And we're reminded of that as these insignificant people in the world's eyes make their way to that place where David once upon a time had been raised, had been anointed king, and now the anointed one, the Messiah, would be born in that place. The town's significance, you see, had everything to do with history and prophecy. It wasn't about its uh, size, population, commercial capacity, none of that. 
It had nothing to do with any of that or its political value. Bethlehem was David's hometown and the place where Samuel anointed him. And oh, by the way, Bethlehem means house of bread. In Hebrew, it's pronounced something like Bethlehem. House of bread. What's bread? I mean, we were down here in the farmer's market today. Kathy and I were wandering around. They were beginning to close down, but you know, they have bread there, loaves of bread. You can get it for a dollar or two. Sourdough, a French baguette. Ooh, I'm going to get hungry here in a minute. Good stuff, but bread isn't any important. I mean, you can get it on the shelf at the grocery store unless you happen to be in North Carolina when they call for snow flurries, and then the bread flies off the shelf along with the milk. I've never understood why bread and milk. Is it like you can make sandwiches out of those two things? I mean, the, the things that go bad the quickest are the things that go off. The, I want something that's non-perishable. Give me some Denny Moore beef stew or sweet soup chicken and dumplings, something that's going to last. Bread and milk. But anyway, it's, it's easily attainable and seemingly cheap and insignificant. Of course, people don't eat it anymore. They're afraid of gluten and they're afraid of carbohydrates. But in the rest of the world, it's, it's basic to life because it is inexpensive. And Bethlehem means house of bread. And we suddenly begin to realize, ah, it's not about something that comes out of the oven. It's about a child who was laid in a manger who would be the bread of life for God's people. Extraordinary. You think somebody invented this story? You think human creativity is such that somebody could have just set the paper and made up all of this? And Oh, by the way, he would be the fulfillment of prophecy that was uttered 400 years before it all happened. Nothing could have been written in that prophecy after the events took place. Skeptics may condition us in our thinking to assume that, well, they just came along later and wrote it back into the story as if they were predicting it. But no. We have actual copies of the scripture that predate the time of Jesus. Those prophecies were already there, over 300 of them, that speak of the Lord Jesus Christ very specifically. He would be called a Nazarene, and yet he would be born in Bethlehem. Micah is clear. There's nothing obscure about it. It's not like those little things you pull out of your fortune cookies at a Chinese restaurant. I won't even tell you the stuff I've read through the years. Can't remember it anyway. You know, most of it didn't happen. I think one thing said, uh, you know, you will step out in daylight and it will be light. It's like that thing somebody told me one time that some philosophy that said the the meaning of life is the sound of one hand clapping. You know, you, you can utter stuff like that all day long. And, and it's amazing how people will actually be impressed with it. Oh, wow. Ooh. But when God speaks through Scripture, he gives specific information about the coming of his son. And if you consider what it would have taken for one person to have fulfilled it all in the way that Jesus did, the probabilities against it are extraordinary. Somebody in MIT did a study of it, and I'm not smart enough to give you the finding, but the point of it was it was one with a whole lot of zeros to one that it could have ever happened and been fulfilled by one person, and yet it was in the person of Jesus. The most extraordinary arrival in history happened in the humblest of surroundings. 
peasant girl from a small town giving birth to a savior in another small town? And where did it happen? We don't even know that, except that it happened in and around Bethlehem. We know more about where it didn't happen than where it did. There was no room for them in the inn. How many Christmas plays through the years have had the poor innkeeper out there? Sorry, no room. Boo, yes. <laughs> There's no mention of an innkeeper in the story. Did you notice that? You're sitting there thinking, wait a minute, I played the innkeeper in the Christmas play. What manner of heresy is this? He's not there. All we know is that there was no room for them in the inn. For all we know, they might have just shown up and it was self-evident. Nobody had to tell them. I mean, I can see Joseph coming back and saying, sorry, Mary, we're not getting in there. It could have been a room in a house that was large enough to house guests and they might have been lying on the floor. That probably was the case. And then there's been all sorts of arguments through the years about where the location was. Was it a barn? Was it a stable like something? Justin Martyr, the first person who wrote about it, didn't write about it until a couple of centuries after it happened, and he said that it was actually in a cave. It was in a sort of a, a carved out something in a bank outside of Jerusalem, and it presumed to have been there, but we don't know that for sure. Others have said no, In more recent years, scholars have said it probably happened in somebody's house because... There were rooms for people who lived in the house. They might have an area for guests, but then there was a place invariably where the animals would be brought in after dark, and there would have been a manger there, and so it was conceivable to think that the baby was simply born in a house and laid in a manger there. It really doesn't matter, does it? Because the extraordinary event is not the building. It's the fact that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who had been robed in glory, worshipped by the angelic host, suddenly in a moment, in swaddling cloths, lying in a feeding trough. The most humble of circumstances, reminding us that ultimately he would live a life of humility, not able to claim a place of his own, birds of the air have nests, the foxes have holes, the son of man has nowhere that he can lay his head, call his own. And then of course, not a manger made of wood, but a cross made of wood would be the thing upon which he would lie down and iron spikes would be driven through his hands and feet. That lowest of humiliation became his. And all of that is evident this little child in a feeding trough. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said something to the effect that uh, that it was an extraordinary event in the world when a manger held something that was greater than the world. And so we find Jesus who truly came to be among us but the lowest of in order to affect our rescue. It matters. Now, this season of the year, our determination to exalt the Lord Jesus, and inasmuch as he was laid in a manger, we have to remind ourselves that even at the very beginning, the world was saying, in effect, 
we have no room for him. And the world still says it. But what about you? How many of us are truly willing to say, Lord Jesus, there's room in my heart for you? Whatever the world may say, whatever its response may be, whatever that proverbial innkeeper, and maybe he was, maybe she was, whomever, it is for us to say, there is room in my heart for you. This Lord Jesus Christ, who came from heaven's highest glory to the lowest ignominy of the manger and even more the cross itself has come to redeem us oh glorious mystery praise his holy name there is a savior and his name is christ the lord worship him let's pray our father in heaven how wondrous it is to sing these words words to songs that have become sentimental to us and yet within them are great and profound truths which are beyond our ability to comprehend in full and yet we express to you the wonder and the glory and the mystery that is god become man in order to save sinners bless us we pray that our hearts may remain open that we may be among those who say, come to my heart, Lord Jesus, come and dine with me. That Jesus may be exalted not only in heaven, but in our hearts. And so we praise you for our Savior. And all this we ask in his name. Amen. One of my favorites, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Perhaps you might want to take your insert for this one. We may have a few lyrics on the sheet that may not be on the screen and maybe that's not the case i may just have missed something at the first service at any rate we're going to sing the hymn let's stand and do it hark the herald angels sing
I should have never doubted Carl Ham to have all the lyrics up there on the screen. So grateful for all of you who have participated in the service. Tomorrow we get the rest of the story as we continue in Luke chapter 2. And also we're going to have the opportunity to hear in the morning a mission update from Jason Francoeur, RUF, Reformed University Fellowship intern at Howard University. He called me a while back and he said, Pastor, I can only be there on Christmas Day. I don't have any other days available. I said, let me think about it. And after a couple of days, we were talking again, and I said, Jason, I believe in RUF, and I believe in you. And I think Christmas Day would be a wonderful time to hear about what Jesus is doing on the campus of Howard University. So we'll hear from him tomorrow. In the meantime, receive the Lord's benediction, and then we'll conclude by singing Silent Night. And at the conclusion of that, you will be dismissed. Receive God's blessing. May grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit be with and abide with you both now and forever. Amen.